Okay, amen. Definitely love those words. We sure do worship a holy God, one that was amazing that he would save us and reach down to us and scoop us out of the miry clay, right, and make us a new creation in Christ Jesus. You know, the other chorus of that song, I always love it when it says, he will reign forever, right? He will reign forever, and that is the truth. And I often leave out the will when I sing that because you reign forever. He reigns now and forevermore. And we, we always focus on the future, which is true, okay? But the Lord Jesus Christ reigns even now, and that is the God who we serve. So, good evening, okay? We're going to be in Exodus chapter 23 today. We're going to be in verses 20 to 23. So if you want to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23. Pastor <coughs> preached on the first two-thirds of this chapter. He did it in two sermons, splitting up in verses 1 to 9 and then 10 to 19. And just for a quick reminder, in verses, uh, the first nine verses, essentially we learned of various different kinds of laws, namely those that upheld goodness, honesty, mercy, and justice. And pastor said something that was really good, and I like how he said it. It's a very simple phrase. He said that we should care deeply about the welfare of others. And I appreciate how he said deeply about the welfare of others. And this includes our enemies, as was evident in verse 4. That is the calling of really God's creation, right? We are to love one another. And we are to love our enemies. And we know that that command, that imperative is useless on the lost because they have no righteousness in themselves. But it's not useless for us who are his children because we have the Holy Spirit in us to be able to love our enemies. That is a difficult thing to do. Then as uh, in verses 10 and 11, we were reminded, <coughs> God reminded the Israelites to be good stewards of the great land that God was going to bless them with. And stewardship is a, is a very important word. We see it come up, that theme come up a lot in Scripture. And stewardship is important because it shows that we value and appreciate and care about what God has given us. We cherish what God has given us. We want to take good care of it. Then in verse 12 was a reminder of obeying the Sabbath, especially because this day was really a grace to God's people. It, had, it was part of the moral law. I believe the principle of it still exists today, maybe in a, a different way, but it certainly still exists. But also, it existed before God gave it in the Ten Commandments. This was a creation ordinance. So you, you see throughout Israel's history, there was always an, an upholding of the Sabbath. And then we learned of three feasts that they were to observe and take seriously. And we were reminded of several things in these feasts. But the main principle that I believe was taught in observing them was not to be forgetful of all that God did for them. And of course, to focus on as us, as the, the New Testament church, we know what those feasts pointed to in the future. We understand the reality, the reality of them and the fulfillment of them in Jesus Christ. And in this last section of the chapter, 
we will now see Israel's the beginning of the conquest of the land that was promised to them. So at first, I read through this text several times to see, I guess, first of all, what is, what is God actually saying here? What is being told to me? What does he want me to take from this? And secondly, which kind of goes with it, to find an outline for the sermon so I can actually make sense and have application and do all those things that a preacher is supposed to do. And certainly not something out of left field, but something that is consistent with the text that can give us application for today. So as I read through it, I found three separate units of thought, which will be our three points or headings for this evening. So I want us to see three things that I believe we can take as God speaks to his people through the prophet Moses. And that is going to be the encouragement, the exhortation, and the exclusivity of what God is trying to say to his people. So why don't you stand with me as I read the text. It's going to be Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33. This is what the word of God says. It says, Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces." But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. <clears throat> I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. And you will drive them out before you, and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. May God add the blessing of the reading of his word. You may be seated, and why don't you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, you truly do reign. You are a glorious God. You are a wonderful God. You're a merciful God, Lord God. And I know we, we understand that every day, living in this tent, Lord God, this tent which is sinful, Lord. We are reminded of your great mercies that are new daily. And praise God that your mercies are new daily, Lord God. We serve an awesome God. 
But I ask now, Lord God, as I always do, echoing the words of John the Baptist, that we as your church would decrease this evening as you would increase and you would be the object of our worship. Give us understanding that we need and speak the words out of my mouth. Lord, we humbly and gladly rely on the power of your Holy Spirit to let him do his wonderful work. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's look verse at the encouragement, verses 20, I'm sorry, 20 to 23. I will read it again. It says, Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I will completely destroy them. Amen. So, as we look at this text... We see here in the beginning that God said he's going to send his angel. Now, many may question, as they should, okay, well, who is this angel? Was he the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ? And we know that there are many references of our Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state appearing in uh, the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And sometimes in Scripture, it's more obvious of who this angel is than other times. Sometimes it's not quite as clear. Usually, when it is talking about the Lord, the definite article, the, answers this question. It comes before the angel. And sometimes there's other clues as well. But in this text, there is no definite article, the, so it's not quite maybe as clear as in other texts. But I would say it's clear enough. It's clear enough. It's certainly what I first took as I read it several times. And there are certain things that, that several clues, I believe, in the text that will help us. It says that this angel was a guardian and that he was to be obeyed. It says, secondly, that he will not pardon your transgression. I think this is important because all transgression is sin and only God can pardon sins says that God's name was in him. I can't help thinking of Jesus was saying, if you've seen me, you've already seen the Father, that I am in the Father and the Father in me. He was the word of God. And the language given to this angel is that of a savior. So my take on this, and I may be wrong, is that I definitely lean that this is the pre-incarnate Lord, the very one that was leading them in a, the pillar of fire in a cloud. And if this is the Lord, and it's a significant part of understanding this text, then I, sure, I want to get it right in my own understanding, but as I looked at it and looked at some, both, uh, some commentators, some theologians, both dead and alive, and I was encouraged to know that most of them kind of take the same approach, that they do believe that this is the Lord. So there's not really too much debate, but regardless of who this angel is, what we can take from this is still the same, because if it was a created angel, I don't believe it was, I believe it was the Lord, He was clearly given special power from God to do God's work. And the special power was for the people of God to go on and do the task that was set 
before them and take what was divinely given to them. So I would call this first point the encouragement. Anytime there is what seems to be a mountain of a task to do, it is good to have some genuine encouragement that comes from the Lord. So here you have the nation of Israel with no home of their own, their own as of now. They're in the wilderness, right? They have just been delivered out of bondage and not just for a small period of time, right? For 430 years in bondage in Egypt, as was predicted beforehand. They're about to go take on a vast land, a land that though Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob knew something about it, these people knew nothing about this vast land that they were unfamiliar with, with a whole bunch of hostile people groups, six different types of people groups that were there that were bigger and mightier than they were. So some encouragement goes a long way. And when it seems like there's an impossible situation or a uh, situation where it seems as if there is no hope on the surface, some divine encouragement certainly goes a long way. And this was an encouragement because God was going to do everything. And all they had to do was trust and obey like the great hymn says. So verse 20 says, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So God was going to send his angel, an angel of great power, of great protection that was going to guard them. God would bring them himself to this particular place. Even more importantly, this was a place prepared by him for them in particular. So this is a great encouragement, but with this encouragement comes a warning. Verse 21 says, Be on guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. And we know they've already been complaining, right? You go further in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7. This is uh, several books later in the Pentateuch. It's a retelling of what was going on, in a sense. And God says this, Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord, and it is never good to be rebellious against God. So this is a great encouragement, but they needed to obey him. They needed to not be guilty of forgetfulness. They already witnessed his hand of deliverance, but they were also guilty of a lot of complaining up to this point. So God gives them a warning. And usually when we, when we look at warnings, right, we look at them kind of in a negative sense, right? It's a warning. But warnings are actually very good. They're very positive. They're actually an act of love. Now, use an example. I think we, we saw this sometimes on cartoons. If there was a pit and it was covered, if we love someone, we would warn them not to walk there because you will fall to getting hurt or your death. So the loving thing would be a warning. So all God's warnings are a grace. They are a love towards his people. So God gives them a warning. Verse 22 and verse 23. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Here's that, that if-then clause, right? 
For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. A lot of ites there, but there's only one ite that mattered, and it was the Israelites for this land. So God is saying, if you obey, I will do everything. So this encouragement was based on conditions, but if those conditions were honored and obeyed, they would have victory. All of our successes in this life are based on the same principles as the church. It's always been that way since in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Our success in life are based on the same principles, trusting and obeying God. We have no power to do anything in and of ourselves. Nonetheless, any power to do any spiritual good in and of ourselves. This is true of both Old Testament saints and, again, New Testament saints. David knew this, did he not? David knew this, and we saw it in his life. There was nothing supernatural about this shepherd boy, but he was able to do some pretty, what seemed to be supernatural things because he knew who his strength was in. He was able to defeat the lion and the bear, right? He was able to defeat the giant and do have many mighty feats. But with all these feats in life, there was a time where it seemed like there was no hope in David's life on the service. When David was still under Saul, the king, and we, we saw how righteous he was when he was under Saul. He and his mighty men expanded Israel's power and their reputation, and their base was in the Negev and Ziklag. That was like their home base. And one time they were gone, right? And the Amalekites seized the opportunity, and they overtook the land, taking all the women, the children, the spoil, everything as they were gone. And this is what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1 to 6. It says, Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. Not a pretty situation on the surface. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Aenoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. Now, he to stop there, but that ending is very beautiful. But David strengthened himself in God, in his God. He did all he can do in seeking the Lord, and the Lord gave him and Israel victory and restored all the people and their possessions back to them. You know, we talk about the fact that the Christian life is not to be lived alone. We talked about that, right? 
that we are family and we need each other. We need to assemble and be together and encourage each other. Spiritual gifts are for the edification of the body. And that is so true. It's not meant to be alone. But there is another context where that is not true. David was alone at this moment. We're in this world. We might be in work, in our jobs, wherever, where we are alone. We may stand alone, but we are not alone. And we need to take courage and have encouragement with that. There are times when we are alone, but we are never alone when the God of all creation is on our side. So can I ask you something, church? Is your encouragement the same thing? How can we apply this in the New Testament church? I couldn't help but going again to one of my favorite verses, and I believe I preached, I say that we actually... A lot of us, a lot of the teachers and preachers quote this verse a lot. If you guys are listening, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, um, put an emphasis on that word beforehand, so that we would walk in them. So here, let's look at the text again. God was going to bring them into a land that he prepared for them. And this means that the land of Israel was prepared for God's people and not these other ites that were dwelling in the land. They were saved from bondage in one land to live and worship God in the promised land, the new land. And as the church, God saved us for his glory. He saved us that we may worship him by trusting him, depending on him, and obeying him, knowing that we are awaiting a wonderful land in the future. This verse is one of my favorites because it reminds us of the guaranteed power that is in us to do whatever God has prepared for us to do. And that's exactly what God is saying to these people. Do we realize, brothers and sisters, that people were sawed in half because of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel? Do we realize that they were burned alive For the sake of the gospel. Do we realize that they were crucified, stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, starved, tortured for the sake of the gospel? And do we think we did this in their own strength? They didn't do anything in their own strength. They had the strength of the living God on their side. Do we think that we can do this without encouragement and strength from above? Whatever these works are, that God has already prepared for us to do, I'm going to say what I always say. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? And I know we do. I know we believe it. And if we do, we must encourage ourselves and each other with these reminders of truth, the very truth that has set us free. Next, let's move on to the exhortation. The exhortation, at first I wasn't sure if this was a good heading because the words are similar, but as much as they are similar and they're often used together as they should be, they are different. They are different. Encouragement focuses more on stimulating or inspiring someone or persuading someone to do something knowing that there is a positive result. You can do it, right? But to exhort focuses more on urging us to do something because of its importance, right? Its necessity, an urgent appeal. 
So the encouragement is God is your power. He is our power. He is our protection. He is our strength. And the exhortation is now go and do. Go and do and go be the vessels that God has called us to be. So it's interesting and I think important to take note of something. As I was looking at the scriptures that had to do with the word exhort or appeal or urge, I found that they were all indicative verbs. And indicatives have to do with matters of fact. And they are the power behind any imperative. In other words, obedience to the imperatives of God is impossible without the indicatives. So there have been many indicatives up to this point. Let's just look at them. They, the nation of Israel, were God's people. God made them his people. They were God's people. They were unlike the rest of the people. Their God is holy. Their God is real. God's hand has been upon them, though they did not deserve it. God delivered them, though they did not deserve it. They had his favor, though they didn't earn it by any of their merit. These are all factual things. God was faithful to himself in his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He cannot deny himself. Romans 8.31 reminds us that if God is for us, finish it, church, who can be against us? In other words, if we have the most powerful being on our side, can we lack anything? Should we fear anything? So he is on our side, and he is very much for us, church. So whenever we see exhortation language in the Bible, it is an exhortation to obey the God who has bought us or to live in a way that is consistent with who we now are in him. It is an exhortation to obey the God that has given us a new heart and has made us a new creation in him. It is an exhortation to love and obey the God who will never take Christ's righteousness away from us until we get our own one day in glory. So I want to look at this exhortation through an imperative. Verse 24. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. And then I'm just going to read the first part of verse 25. But you shall serve the Lord your God. God was their God. He is our God. Therefore, what he is saying is worship him alone and obey everything he has said because he is for you, not against you. And he has already demonstrated this to them if they would just not forget. And he has already demonstrated this for us as his church. So an exhortation is always to our benefit as well. Let's read on now and look at all that God is going to do. The end of verse 25. Look at all the I wills. It says, And he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There, there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days, a rich, fulfilling life. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. 
They're no match for you because you have me. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea, what he has promised, of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. So we see 11 different things or blessings that God will do for them if they obey him, and he will do it all. Praise to the Lord. So the exhortations are based on both the warnings, which are good, and blessings, which we know are good, that come from God, which are acts of love to his people. And they should motivate his people to serve him better, serve him more in this life. We're not going to do it perfectly. We know that. But it should motivate us to prove that he is our first love. We all say he's our first love. But the proof is in a pudding, right? The evidence is in what we can see. You know, when God was talking about false teachers, he said, you will know them by their fruits. Well, then the opposite has to imply as well, right? You will know those who are his by their fruits. You turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse, uh, verses 17 to 21, and we know Philippians is a book that is very encouraging. There is really not much negative at all in this book with the exception of two ladies that were causing a little disunity, and it wasn't anything doctrinal, Right? So in Philippians chapter 3, let me just read this for you. I think it goes beautifully with this. It says, Brethren, join in following my example. Now remember the example of Paul, okay? He said in other spots, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I believe it was three times, I could be wrong, that Paul was imprisoned and it eventually led to his death, right? So Paul saying, Brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. It's not just me. In other words, imitate Christ. But of those who are imitating Christ and are good examples, imitate what they're doing because they're imitating Jesus. This is exhortation language. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So it's interesting. He's talking about those who walk contrary to the way Christ walks, that they're enemies. Now that should be an eye-opener because there are times that we do that, right? God's people should walk like their master walks. Verse 19, it says, referring to those people who do not walk like Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. That means they're mastered by their flesh. They don't have any power in themselves and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. It says verse 20, but for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject 
all things to himself. So church, be encouraged by what God has done for us. And with that encouragement, consider it urgent, urgent to follow him in humble obedience, knowing that the ability to follow him does not lie in our own abilities, but in the God who is able and will make us able in his strength. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Our God is able, and we need to believe that. We need to believe that. So let's look at now verse 32 and verse 33, the exclusivity or the exclusiveness. I think they both mean the same thing, to be honest with you. It says, the blessings of God are indeed for God's people. God's people are not like other people, I said. They are holy and are called to be holy as their God is holy. Therefore, verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They're nothings. That's what they are. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. And why is that? Because you have the same nature as they have. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So this land that is presently occupied by many different people groups must be rid of them. Because it was not prepared for them. It was prepared for God's people. So they are essentially going to get the boot. They're going to be destroyed. They were a wicked people who served and worshipped their own fake gods. And God is telling the Israelites that all who do not worship me and all who do not serve me are excluded from this great land. The very land that he has prepared and all the blessings that flow from this great land. Heaven, the new earth, It's exclusive, right? It's only for the people of God. There's going to be no unrighteousness in it. So now here we see a call for God's people to be separate from other people. Now there are multiple things that will go wrong when there are unequally yoked relationships. And that principle applies even to the world in different contexts, right? So many things will go wrong when there are unequally yoked relationships. It never works because you're dealing with contrary ways of thinking and acting. So for this, perhaps we know the best passage to go is in 2 Corinthians. So open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll read in verse 14 to 18. As you're opening there, just be mindful of the book, 2 Corinthians. Be mindful of Corinth was like Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a wicked land. I mean, you can say it's all wicked. I get it. But even in secular standards, they were wicked, right? It's kind of like Hollywood or where we live in New York City or any really uh, big city that has a port has a tendency to be much more left-leaning and godless, right? So here at 2 Corinthians, and he's writing to this church in the second letter, And he says this in verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. 
For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Righteousness is obedience to the law of God, and lawlessness is disobedience, being lawless, as it says. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? We know that light represents holiness and darkness evil, right? He says, what fellowship do they have? They don't have any. (coughs) Sorry. Or what harmony, that is agreement between people groups, right? Has Christ our Lord with Belial, another name for the devil. So what agreement do they have? They don't intersect at all. There is no agreement at all. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And I like how that follows that because it's talking about two masters. You have Christ and Belial and their people who follow their master, right? So God's people, believers, follow Christ and the unbelievers follow Belial. What agreement do they have? None, none whatsoever. And this is the problem with the ecumenical movement within the church. You try to acclimate the different religions or even within the church and we have, you can't mix truth and error. Not even a little bit. We can't do that. That's probably when one of the greatest destructions of the church is that movement in trying to syncretize. Not good. goes on in verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. So not only is it impossible to live together in harmony, it's what's best for us to be separate. Every command of God is for the good of his people. Again, we look at them as a burden. They're not a burden. Every command of God is for the good of his people. So instead of looking at God's commandments, like I said, as a burden, we should look at them as an expression of his great love. His great love. He's showing us his nature and his character. So let's just recap again and we'll close in a word of prayer. God has spoken and we should be encouraged when he speaks, especially when he speaks of all that he is going to do and has done. He does the work that needs to be done, so stop growing weak in heart, thinking that it is on you to do it. No, we are called to live this Christian life until he takes us home. If he gets us up tomorrow morning, that is a great mercy that God has given us to serve him. But don't be overwhelmed thinking, how am I going to do this, Lord? You can't. You can't do it. But you can in Christ Jesus under the Holy Spirit's power. He did the work. He is in us. He is tabernacled in his people. Secondly, knowing this, be wise by exhorting one another to trust and obey in every way all the things that our master has told us. And thirdly, Remember how highly favored you are. You know, that, that, that term, 
less than highly favored, is abused by many in the bad part of the charismatic circle. <laughs> the reality is, though, we are blessed and highly favored. Just because they abuse it doesn't mean we can't be stopping from saying it. How highly favored we are to be a part of his exclusive covenant of grace, which is the new covenant in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So let us serve him and no other. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, because we were once not a people, and now we are the people of God. And that is so awesome. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for doing everything that needs to be done. Lord, we wouldn't be here if you didn't open up our eyes, if you didn't draw us to yourself. And Lord, we, I can't even be in this pulpit right now, Lord, without your Holy Spirit. I can't do anything. I need you. We need you, Lord. Help us to not ever be self-dependent, but dependent on you, the Holy One. Forgive us for our many sins and help us to sin no more. And thank you for your amazing forgiveness, which we have as far as east is to the west. No matter what, no matter what, you see Christ in us. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Lord. So, Father, until you take us home, help us, override us, do whatever is necessary, even if it means hardship in our lives, to make us the vessels that we ought to be. Help us, Lord, for God's sake, for your sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. truly funny because we think about it every message that we've heard on Sunday night we could sing trust and obey over and over it's one of those things because the truth of scripture comes out and our only hope is full reliance on our Lord and Savior so we are not going to sing that though um, we're going to sing that I pray would be the cry of your heart as the deer panteth for the water so my soul longeth after thee so let's stand and open up, if you can open up in the hymnals, to 548. I was going to do a different song, but I feel like this is so apropos at this moment. Five forty-eight. as the deer. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship Thee. You alone are my strength, my shield. To You alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's 
desire and I long to worship Thee. You're my friend and you are my brother even though you are a king. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship Thee. I want You more than gold or silver, only You can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship Thee. Amen. Be blessed.